Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Welcome to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, Drew Meredith. It's good to be back. It is. I believe this is in order. Always surprised I'm invited back. There he is. He's back, the man of the hour. Uh, Dr. Andrew Derrimuth is also in the room. We need to do like a, I think some sort of like twitch or some sort of thing that happens. Oh, when, it, when he takes over. When he takes over. Yeah. You know, just like it's shakes. It's a out-of-body out of <laughs> experience. Yeah. And people recognize it, particularly yeah. if they come on the road and see. They need to know who's who. Probably when I'm not wearing sneakers. When you're not wearing, it, it's got to be like, maybe it's like a pair of shades that you put on. <laughs> you know, some kids, you give them a pair of glasses, they become like a superhero or something. <laughs> anyway, um, welcome to this. I do have glasses. So. There you go. Um, Drew's wearing his new shoes today and we are recording in the studio. Uh, we are answering your questions, providing our usual update on Saturday morning, 7 a.m. Every Saturday morning, 7 a.m. Make it part of your ritual. Lie in bed and listen to us. Uh, have breakfast, listen to us, uh, or go for a run. Listen to us. Listen to us. Send us your questions because we do love your questions. But what have you, uh, what have you been working on this week? First, year, first week of the new financial year. It's been a, it's been a bit crazy. Has it? No shortage of activity happening this week. No shortage of activity. Uh, we obviously that? start doing our quarterly reviews for all our clients, and then all the superannuation, taxation laws, and everything else changes at the same time. Yep. Uh, but it, I have to ask why you're giving me the round of applause as well. Is that is that the, the segue <laughs> oh. into the opening? <laughs> oh well, yeah. For those of you that uh, maybe have been living under a rock this week, uh, like me, the Reserve Bank of Australia. Uh, the Reserve Bank of Phil Lowe uh, <laughs> put uh, interest rates on hold. Maybe five soon, so <laughs> yeah, I have to I, wait to see. I've got to think about that. I was just trying to find the most outrageous headlines this week, <laughs> and I was Googling for RBA interest rates, and everything had Phil Lowe in the photo. Phil Lowe does this. Phil Lowe does that. Give the guy a break. You can blame all the bloody- He's got a whole board. N- numpties in Queens, uh, in uh, Canberra as well. Not Queensland, they're fine. But uh, Canberra. <laughs> but Canberra. Um, like, the, if you want to find out what's going wrong with property, have a look in the parliament. Uh, if you want to find out what's going wrong with a lot of other things, have a look at parliament um, or your exactly. local council, your state Don't government. back. Anyway, um, no, I just think a lot of blames put on him. He's a very easy scapegoat. Even St- uh, Carl Stefanovic was coming out this week and- 
something, 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 household. I'll just jump you on the Derrimuth. I'm waiting for my invitation. <laughs> That's it. We actually do have a question. Someone is point? predicting your appointment uh, to the to the board, uh, to the chairman role. I better get a passport. Yeah. Um, yes, I also did a PhD, so we can conjure that up somehow. If anyone works for a uni, um, we can give him a honorary PhD. Honorary PhD in economics. I think that's how they get him anyway. <laughs> um, so, yeah, RBA interest rates hold big news. Massive news. Massive news. Market didn't move that much. I mean, the market was slightly negative and it went up 0.5%, as everyone would say. Oh, well, the market jumped after the RBA of course. announcement. But it, I think we've. Something. It's been expected the last time was a surprise that they actually increased last month and i think it's quite strange in australia how often we meet compared to other countries we yeah. seem to meet more often than anyone um i think but, we do uh, end up with a couple more meetings a year don't we is yeah. that the thing something maybe like, like eight to 12 versus the us yeah. or, or 11 for us yeah something um, like that. yeah but i think you're seeing a trend across the world apart from maybe the uk at the moment where central banks are starting to pause to see what happens and there were a couple of articles this week in the fin that suggested the real impact of the current, you know, you have a look at rates only started increasing in May last year. That's 12 months, less, just over 12 months. Mm. People are predicting it's actually going to be the first quarter of next year where the real flow on impact of consumer spending happens because the roll off of fixed rate mortgages is now, but it takes an extra three months or so for the variable rate repayments to kick in at the same time. Mm. It's interesting because then there was talk this morning, um, there was talk this morning of the Federal Reserve hinting at raising rates again. So, I mean, who knows? It's just like, a, I feel like the whole finance industry is just Chinese whispers or just whispers in general. I feel like it's too short a period of time to judge what's whether it's worked or not. Oh, yeah. Look at the household spending. I keep coming back to this. Uh, and household savings. Household savings has plummeted. Yeah. You don't need to be like a rocket scientist to work out that people are struggling. Uh, some people. Some, of course, some people are struggling. This is a big story, isn't it? Where people who bought houses in the last- No, no, no not that part. <laughs> not that not going there. People who bought houses in the last three years and people who were you know, close to the, you know, what if you call it the mortgage belt, they're the ones that are hurting the most. Whereas people who are paid off their mortgages and probably wealthier and higher levels of income- they're not being impacted. That's why the restaurants are full and yeah. the city's always full. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not the office towers. No, not the office towers. As tours. we've discovered, uh, there was actually another, there's a question on that too, which is funny because you did come out with a bit of a cautionary yeah. tale last week and said, here you go, guys. I was a bit angry on the plane when I wrote that. <laughs> uh, and he did follow up with an article. It's yes. available on RAS Media, so check it out. Um, so, yeah, interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. Um, we... I've also had you you in that article that you wrote, and I'll link to it in the show notes. I'll just make a note of this. Uh, in that article you wrote, you also said that there was you referenced because last week you said that everyone's going to be saying it's the return of stock picking active over passive because there was a paper that you mentioned. Yes, from the Reserve Bank, Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve, yeah. So um, the US, and I thought that was quite interesting. Can you just illuminate? It's very. Short paraphrasing. Okay. <laughs> but the Federal Reserve and all kinds of institutions put out papers about the drivers of stock returns. But this paper was kind of stood out because it basically said what I think a lot of people understand, but maybe at least in finance understand, maybe not in the broader uh, mm. economy, is that interest rates are one of the biggest drivers of returns in pretty much every asset class. Oh, yeah. Whether it's the availability of credit or the value compared to a term deposit, the valuation multiple, uh, they drive essentially everything. So this paper from one of the 
uh, one of the analysts within the Federal Reserve basically saying that the decline in interest rates and corporate tax rates were behind the majority of earnings improvement over the last three decades. And the decline, which is, a you know, if you talk about where share returns come from, there's a question on that too. Yep. They come from the earnings growth as well, uh, earnings, and then the multiple that people are willing to pay hmm. for those earnings. Yeah. So they're saying that corporate tax rates have fallen, interest rates have fallen, which means interest payments have gone down. So your earnings or your your e, After tax. the IT, the yeah. e, the it of the of your EBIT have gone down, which makes your EBIT higher. And they're saying that majority of earnings growth has actually come from falling uh, interest and tax, and then the majority of the the expansion in PE multiples was driven by a lower discount rate in the form of lower interest rates. So. I argue, this is the, the the conclusion, that the boost of profits and valuations from ever-declining interest rates and corporate tax rates is unlikely likely to continue, indicating significantly lower profit growth and stock returns in the future. Active funds management, mate. Maybe. So this is so you could say, so if you say all- No, all, interest you say rates a lot again. of the return has come from- All. Declining, all, all of the return has come <laughs> from declining interest rates. Not me. But that's if you made that argument, then yeah. you would say, well, you should be active. You could. Because if interest rates aren't going to do anything, then you're not going to make any money. Yeah, I, this is a very broad brush. <laughs> <laughs> Assessment of the future. Like if you if you think that we now sit at 4.1% interest rates, there's Maybe every chance that interest rates again. fall again. And you can't just predict this is what we say in, in the golden rules as well. Like, yes, this is fantastic and, ra- and uh, rates may be higher forever or for higher for the next 10 years, but you can't invest on the basis that they won't change. Hmm. So I think it's it's interesting to understand that you do need to take a different approach today, and and part of it is you can't just be passive. Passive's worked, as you can tell. Passive's been driven by earnings growth for the last thirty years. Yeah, you can't just be passive. You need to include passive and active. We think for the next decade, decades. Hmm. Where would you be most active? Which asset classes? It's almost act. Uh, I think every asset class has some value in active, but it's understanding styles and the factors within those asset classes. So styles being value cyclical companies versus growth companies and the ability to pick the eyes out of those or determine when those are going to perform better in different economic conditions. And then naturally, anything that's less research. So we've talked about every week, small caps, emerging markets, uh, and smaller individual sectors. Mm. Mm. For sure. Um, So... Some news on the podcast this week. We uh, had Michael Kemp uh, for the extended version on the Australian Investors Podcast. Check that out. It came out on Wednesday. It's probably one of the best podcasts recorded this year. Um, Really good. Uh, Really, really good episode. He's the uh, Barefoot Investor Analyst. So if you were a Barefoot Investor member or you know Scott Pape's work, he was the analyst that stood behind all of that stuff that um, the Barefoot Investor did. Had Queenie on Self Off Live, which was great fun. Uh, And we had uh, Richard Dynam on from Fidelity talked about retirement as a big picture. One of my takeaways from that, he's a trained actuary and he specializes in retirement, like modeling. Yeah. And um, he said that one of the things that he firmly disagrees with, um, kind of like the status quo, is that most people should be more aggressive. If I could paraphrase in my words, what I I heard, confirmation bias. Um, Most people should be more aggressive, including people that are like, 40s and 50s should There's be more. There's a case to be 100% equities all the time. Well, that's it. Yeah. That's basically what- On historic returns though. Historic returns and also like on a thick-skinned 
um, assumption. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you want to make the sure. Tender emotional people. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That we are. If you're a bit um, a bit skittish, probably not <laughs> the one for you. But um, it was really Aren't good. Um, he had some really good insights. There's a free report available on that episode too from Fidelity on retirement and more of the emotional side of retirement, not really financial side, which is kind of cool. Um, and I also hear a rumor. There was a, something on the grapevine. I do hear a lot of rumors. Um, and um, I don't think you're supposed to speak about them on here. Wow. Who's listening to us? It's you and I in the studio. Oh, wait. You're listening to. Uh, it's, uh, so I did hear a rumor that there may be a retirement podcast in the works. So I will um, check back in on that. Not from Rask. It's something. It's not from Rask. I'm not pumping our own uh, ties, buttering our own bread here. It's something else. Um, other news. Something outside the box. Something outside the box. Outside the box of this room, actually. Um, or maybe there will be a few recorded in here. Who knows? Australian Super. Thoughts? Yeah, so it delivered. Uh, I still, I'm going to try not to be too negative here, but I still find it amazing that a fund that manages $300 billion is able to deliver their p- performance within five days of the end of the quarter. Yeah. Like, how do you tell the valuation of every asset when you've probably got 20% in unlisted? But credit to them. Credit to them. Let's make it up. <laughs> they delivered an 8.2% 8, 8. Uh, return for their default Option, which is really quite growthy, yeah. as we know. Uh, interesting. We always like because to of the at, unlisted assets. Uh, no, just in general. I think the only they, they consider a few things in our that uh, in our view that are a bit more aggressive than defensive. But the asset cl- asset allocation would be like twenty eighty. Yeah, I think right. so. Quite growthy. Don't quote me on that. I have to check that. <laughs> That's true. So please don't call me. <laughs> but performance was driven so financially. Yeah, I'm not sure what many were expecting. I was talking many a uh, couple of clients in Adelaide last week, mm. and performance for the financial year for a broadly balanced, so like forty sixty, has been about you know anywhere from seven to ten percent in the financial year, which is probably not what a lot of people expected given all the headlines in mm. the media everywhere. Oh yeah, no, no, not many people expect that, right? So um, the question is not necessarily the qu- well. The question has always been, what happens next? Always because of, but it's probably more important to ask that question now because of unlisted assets, property, office towers, infrastructure, Melbourne Airport, you name it. That was the thing here. So eight point two percent return. Yeah. But Aussie and global equities did all the heavy lifting, fourteen and nineteen percent each. Okay. So the tech rally helped Aussie super like as much as it did anyone else. Okay. But they're property allocation fell 7% and they had write-downs in their private equity fixed interest and credit portfolios. Yeah, well. But you don't know the, the, the level of those. You know the level of those write-downs as of the current time. I wouldn't mm. surprise me if they continue to revalue those assets Yeah, right. Uh, quite regularly as well. So they were the detractors from returns and it's hard to see property not continuing to, to be in, under pressure in some way. Where are you sourcing this information? That data? Yeah, it came straight from an article, which came straight from oh, uh, Australian okay. Super. I was going to say because, like, I, I, as someone who has an Australian Super account, I um, should probably check in on it there. <laughs> <laughs> so the last, I'm just going to skim your note. I've skimmed your notes here, and the last point was the one that was interesting to me. Loading up on government bonds again. Yeah, yeah. So there, that was in the thin today. Yeah, right. So Australian Super is moving back into. I mean, it's long duration bonds. Is that what you mean? I mean, it's not a no-brainer. But I, we met, uh, probably say hi to Jill and Sam uh, last week. Okay, okay, Jill. I won't give you any more on that. Uh, we went them last week. And a big topic of conversation was this idea that we don't need to take more risk than we need. Well, I mean, why take more risk than you need to? 
particularly in an environment where you can buy government bonds at 4%. Term deposits are now over 5%, yeah. even for a portion of your portfolio. So why why take that 100% risk that we we're joking about, yeah. particularly in retirement? So, uh, And they're just kind of following the same idea as everyone else. You can get a pretty risk-free return. Yes, there's some risk that you'll – there's some cap them well, volatility that might come if rates continue to move higher. But if you think of most of that's done – Government bonds, low risk fixed income make a lot more sense and you can shift your 30, 70 to 40, 60 and not have to give up on returns mm, yeah. or income at least. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a really interesting one because we, we spent a bit of time, I spent a bit of time on this this week uh, for Self Wealth Live explaining how this part of the portfolio has been virtually unloved. And uninvestable. Yeah, for so long. It was uninvestable for the last few years, but even before that, people weren't that interested because interest rates were so low. They were thinking, how could they go lower? They did in the end, but um, all of a sudden now with interest rates at 4 and 5% and all this sort of stuff around the world, it becomes a question of you can actually probably profit from owning government bonds. Definitely. Once if, again. And if you think there's a question about recession, well, what will probably do well in recessions will be government bonds. In every recession, COVID recession, everything else, government bonds, the yields fell I mean, interest mainly because interest rates were cut, mm. the value of government bonds went up significantly, um, and because the yields are falling, uh, so they provide a natural ballast in those environments because the natural reaction of central banks is to cut interest rates to try and support the economy. Mm. So that's probably if we won't preempt that question, maybe, but no. um, they've historically been a great ballast, and they didn't work in the last few years because they couldn't fall any further. Once you get to zero, you can't go too far negative. Yeah, yeah, it's fair. Um, you did see, and I'm glad you made note of this, the deal with uh, T- Telstra and Elon Musk. Yes, what a deal. What a deal. Does that turn Telstra into a growth company? Uh, growth. I think it's all-time highs and they're going higher. Into the Musk stars. could just buy Telstra tomorrow. But why would he want to? Wouldn't that be easier? Hopefully he doesn't have one of those brain fades where he says he'll buy something and it's official. $50 billion. It's l- just a little bit more than Twitter. <laughs> But uh, surely you just buy it. I have a Starlink at home. For context, it's eight hundred eighty billion for Tesla, and the codes are very similar. <laughs> oh, jeez! <laughs> Look at him selling it. Um, Call me. Uh, so, what was the deal? Uh, basically, Telstra entered an agreement to help roll out uh, to to partner with Starlink, which you, I think you've got one on your roof. We've got one on our uh, my family's farm. Yeah. Uh, that basically helped to help provide internet connections to some of the remote parts of Australia. Mm-hmm. And from all reports, it's exceptional quality. Yeah, it's good. It's yeah. just if you're Expensive. if you're like doing, say, like a live podcast or you're trying to dial into whatever, the upload can be a bit laggy because it has to find the next- You can actually watch the dish. Or oh, the satellite. Yeah, it finds the next satellite as it comes over and then it goes back and it takes about five, three to five seconds to go back and then find so the like next satellite buffering. spinning around the world. Yeah. But um, it, all, it all is perfect in terms- other than the latency, it's actually perfect in terms of bandwidth, so it will actually make up for the lost bits yeah. um, pretty easily. But, um, yeah, I guess it just throws a spanner in the works for the MBN. And Apparently, well, the MBN, did you see this afternoon? I didn't, not this afternoon, no. So the M- NBN Co. is now exploring how to offer its own version of Elon Musk's Starlink telecommunication system. What is, why? Why? <laughs> What? Well, summer cars were a good idea. You got to you got to follow it, don't you? But then apparently they've already spent six hundred and twenty million on their own regional satellite service, which could then just be made redundant. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, turn to Canberra. <laughs> and as we were saying earlier on, um, but at the end of the day, I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, we need the government to have, I guess, an infrastructure or whatever. Um, anyway, so moving on, you said you actually had some hypothetical questions for me. I did have Before a couple. Before we get to the actual questions. I had to take one in. off because I wasn't quite ready to answer it. Okay. So I thought an interesting one would be, what is the holding in your portfolio, not ProMedicus, not uh, old mate over the road here? The surprise holder. <laughs> Surprise holding in your portfolio that no one would expect you to hold. I've got two. I didn't include one on here. I'm a bit embarrassed by it, but it still sits there. A V bond? <laughs> no, I do. V bond. Actually, VBND. This is not a surprise. Surely you've got some weird and wonderful. I, no, I don't. Not anymore. I, most of my portfolios are pretty boring vanilla. A Femex? What's that? FMEX. It's the Fidelity oh. uh, Emerging Markets Fund. Yeah. Um, Jeez, I could just go through them all. <laughs> so surprising. Yeah, that'd be it. Like, is there any direct stocks that people would never have heard of? Uh, no, I can tell you some that I sold not too long ago. Like, yeah. I sold some companies like Right Crowd. That was a disaster. Um, <laughs> we're not going... We're not, this isn't cathar <laughs> cathartic again. We're not doing that again. <laughs> okay. No, no, but that would be... I can tell you... So, uh, everyone in the team, uh, the rest team, had to submit... Uh, a 300-word bio on a stock or an ETF, and then they got $1,000 in financial year to invest in it. And so I did it for myself as well. Um, and the stock that I was going to put that $1,000 in is a company that I've already spoken about 100,000 times, is um, LaserBond. Yeah. It's a small cap engineering company. Uh, it's not a prediction, it's not a recommendation, but that was just what I was going to put my money in. I've already got enough ETFs and all that. I, I'm very, very, very concentrated these days, Drew, like seriously concentrated. Hands off. Yeah, as in like no, as in like if I've, I will only ever buy something unless I'm seriously comfortable holding that for, not months, not yeah. even two or three years, like a decade. That's kind of my ideal holding period. But a lot of people say that, but I'm genuinely that's how I feel. Well, I've got some weird stuff then. What's in your portfolio other than say like Zip? Do you still own Zip? Yeah, I think so. How's that going? Let's check in. By the way, while no, I do that, Nvidia is actually up four percent. So you're ahead of me on that one from last week. We're oh. short-term traders here at the Australian Investor Podcast, not really. So one probably not that surprising. I've got some pretty core. Uh, Forty-two cents. Oh my gosh. Fund holdings and ETFs, like you do, that run the majority of my SAA. But then I've got my little non-core portfolio. Non-core satellite, we'll call it. Palo Alto Networks. Yeah, maybe you said that a couple, yeah, maybe you were talking. The, the other weird one I don't really like to talk about, but has done quite well, is Corteva. What the heck is that? Not sure if you've ever heard of this company. Is Again, this an Australian company? Actually, it came from podcasts. No, it's a US company. Corteva US Cream? Yeah. No, Corteva. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, you were. I'm going through my medicine cabinet. <laughs> CTV. Apologies, I do have quite a. A cold coming through. Maybe some cultivar. I don't know what it does, but I'm sure it would help. Basically, the future of agriculture. Oh, right. I've Fertilizers seen this and, and that yes, sort of thing. Yes, so. yes, But I didn't actually know. Listening to another it was podcast. The ag about two agricultural or three unit of Dow Dupont. Yes. Jesus, that I've been watching that show lately. Anyway, um, well, so that's mine was a bit more interesting than yours. Yeah. It's up 100 percent in five years. Not bad. Not bad. How long are you out for? Three. Oh well, you've done pretty well then. Done okay. Not as good as Fang, but. Oh, just way to bring that up. No, found it on a podcast. Oh, what well, podcast? listen to it on a podcast. Animal Spirits? Oh, it might have been Invest Like the Best or one of those. Yeah, cool. I think. Yeah, great. Um, what? So you've got Zip, which everyone knows. No. <laughs> Trade Desk is another one. Oh, yeah, I sold that exactly at the wrong time. And I kept it. Yeah. yeah. 
um, that's a good business. So automated uh, advertising, they're working on their 2.0 version of UID at the moment, yep. which is basically an upgraded version of cookies without the privacy. <laughs> <laughs> no, it legit is. It's an upgraded version <coughs> of uh, cookies. So every time you go to those websites, you have to go accept cookies. You won't have to do that anymore uh, because there's not as many privacy oh, concerns. Yeah. Um, really impressive business and uh, starting to use more artificial intelligence. Um, that's a good question. I like the hypothetical. Any others? I did have one, but I haven't prepared myself. So what do you think is the most interesting non-core ETF available in Australia at the moment? Oh. You've yeah, I haven't really, prepared either. Uh, so. Whoa. Um, well, I've always struggled. I'll give you one. I've always struggled. I'll just to get, keep it to like passive or thematic. I've always struggled with qual because I've never understood whether it's a core holding or a satellite holding. Uh, it's QUAL holds about 300 global stocks for quality. Um, because it's got 0.4% in fees, I've always struggled to think, I'm like, that's probably more than I'd want to pay for my core ETFs, for mostly passive. And it's also a little bit too diversified because it would overlap with like my S&P 500 or NASDAQ or whatever you own. But I actually think it's a really good ETF. And I think there's the one from BetaShares, QLTY. Yeah. But that's probably one. Um, Non-core ETFs. I would have to say Fang has been one of the most yeah. favorite over the past few years. When it came out, I was like, "This is what, why would people invest in them?" And then I got it because at the time it came out, I had I held Fang, I held Fang stocks. Sometimes so Apple, the timing Google, is what drives it. Yeah. Uh, Meta. I had all these stocks in my portfolio. Like, why would I buy this thing? And now I realize why I would buy this thing. Yeah. Um, I can. T- I can. I'll, I'll take a spin on this question. I'll tell you the one that surprised me the most is Semi. Semi ETF from yeah. Globalx. Yeah. Because I thought- um, 112 million. I thought that Semi would- I didn't think it would be successful. I thought it was released right at the top of the like hype cycle of semiconductors. Yeah. But then along came AI. <laughs> it, is, it is one of those risks where a lot of these tend to get issued during a positive period of time and which ones- Sustain and how does that cycle go? Is it just one cycle or does it continue? Yeah, uh, and you can see by the flows into a lot of more. Like semi is over 100 million, which is quite successful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What about you? I kind of probably sticking with the Palo Alto Networks would be Hack. I've used that Hack ETF before. Yeah, so global cybersecurity. I yeah. think just paranoid about running businesses that are all online. Yeah, and constantly worried. <laughs> what security? Okay, tell us all your password and credit card information. What's the? Um, what do you use? LastPass. That's pass, right. Yeah, yeah. Which got hacked. Yeah, okay, that's great. <laughs> so you we have a, we so have other a, than investing in any of these companies that solve these problems, do you use any of them? Yeah, we have we have an outsourced IT firm that does like constant monitoring, um, as well as I can't tell you exactly what's this what we use on our systems to to for the cybersecurity part, but Yeah. I did see someone ordered some um, breast milk bags for it within my Amazon account the other day. <laughs> I'm so being legit to freeze breast milk. Yep. Yeah. You, yeah. yeah. Or store. It yep. was sitting in my cart, ready to be checked out when I was buying podcast equipment. <laughs> I've shared it on Twitter. I don't know how I got there. All right. <laughs> like, so it's an no follow-up question. <laughs> um. <laughs> uh, another ETF that caught me off guard. I'm, I feel like I'm just talking about global here, but this one really did catch me off guard. Is the USTB the yep. Treasury Bond ETF? I was like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, advisors will use this. It's past 500 mil. 
I think there's a big role of that in managed accounts and asset ah. consultant portfolios where where experienced investors want to now are thinking more, I don't want to give all my money to a single manager to do every part of their fixed income. They want to go, I want to determine how much I've got in US treasuries, in Australian treasuries, in term deposits. So I think that's a big driver, those managed accounts. We caught up with Blair this week, last week as well. Oh, yeah, cool, yeah. cool. Um, okay, so let's get on to some questions then, unless you've got any more hypotheticals for me. Not at the moment, I'm sure I'm going to have to put something one. more spicy in my portfolio yeah. just to come on and be like, hey guys, you'll never guess what I bought. <laughs> I do still have my NFTs if anyone's wondering. <laughs> I've gone down about <laughs> well, 95%. That would, that would have been perfect. Yeah, well, oh yeah, okay. So I own about five <laughs> NFTs. Um, Can I have one? Well, if I could figure out, I'd lost my password. So <laughs> I will never ever get them back. The worst thing is one of them's an so, NFT of my profile picture on Twitter. And I wanted to create one to see if I could this is before you could pay to get a blue tick on Twitter, so I could use an NFT so to thwart the scammers. <laughs> it worked, but now I've lost my password. <laughs> <laughs> so that's for life. Uh we're answering questions. These are strictly and only general financial information only because we do not know your personal circumstances. Like Minaj who wrote in this first question, I have no idea who uh, that is. I don't know their financial circumstances, but it's a great question, uh, which I'll get to just quickly. At the end of the day, you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional who can give you advice on your circumstances, including your needs, goals, and objectives. Say someone like Drew here. If you were to look up Drew's um, credentials, you can check that in the moneysmart.gov.au website. You can search for his name or you can search for an AFSL and see if it's current. Uh, you can see what he's qualified in. You could also see, I think there's also things like any sort of things that you get pinged on, um, things like missing something or not getting uh, the right credentials for something. I think financial advisors have little notices next to their names in there too. Yeah, definitely. And if we talk about products, what I mean by that is like financial things like shares, but more so things like ETFs and managed funds and super accounts. It's really important that you read the PDS. That's got a product disclosure statement. I hate that we use the word product in finance, but that's basically what they are. I normally associate product with like a TV or a can of baked beans, but in finance, it could be like managed funds. Yeah. Um, okay. So first question comes from Minaj, which is, do you just cover stock recommendations or research on ETFs? And do you also have knowledge and insights on individual stocks based on your research? Now, um, so for Rask, we do provide commentary on stocks and we do share some research. I share some research with members, including through our value investor program. We do case studies. We're doing a few at the moment. But at the moment, we do not do this. We used to do this a lot. Uh, we don't do this as much anymore. Um, I think if you want to get really high quality research, you can go to some of our partners like Intelligent Investor, Morningstar. We do do it. So if you subscribe, uh, you'll get stocks research but um definitely go and check out those guys and follow your favorite fund managers drew yeah i mean part of our service is when we do we do two parts as as you'll see on our on the website we do upfront advice and part of that we look at everything from superannuation to investments and we recommend what people should buy not an individual stock like a broker but a whole portfolio mm -hmm. and then our, a lot of our ongoing advice is centered around portfolio management so Corporate actions, how's the market change? We'd be buying this, selling this, and that's funds, ETFs, shares, basically everything. So, basically, whatever. Yeah, but that's ongoing and, and upfront advice. Yeah. So, Drew's talking about Waddle Partners here, Manoj. So, um, m m many financial advisors uh, 
have an opinion on whether they build portfolios for clients out of shares or if they just use ETFs or if they just use managed funds or they use a blend of all of them. So you can ask a financial advisor about that. Stockbrokers, which are very different, stockbrokers are only basically there to talk about individual stocks. Yeah, transaction-based. Yeah. Um, so that's very different. Um, and then you have the research providers like The Motley Fool, Intelligent Investor, uh, Rask does this. Uh, and then you've got others as well like Morningstar. So Mary Mary, quite contrary, good name. And by the way, if you send in a question and you have the best name for the week as awarded this week by Dr. Andrew Derrimuth, yes, um, you do get an award. So right into us, you get a Value Investor Program. Happy or happy Saturday morning. Jeez, I've got to turn up the font size on that one. Was interested in your thoughts on the A-REIT sector. That's the Australian Real Estate Investment Trust sector. As they generally aim to maintain their dividend yield, is there potential upside in the share price to consider? Because they're aware of the volatility and leverage inside REITs, and many of them have been absolutely punished. Um, or is the Nadir still to come with more devaluation of underlying property and higher capitalization rates? So, Drew... Basically, a question of holy heck, REITs have really struggled, yep. done really poorly. This is property, uh, office property, this type of stuff, been really smoked. You said last week, which may have prompted this, you said last week that uh, the office sector in particular uh, is maybe something to be wary of. Particularly unlisted at the moment. I think one of the big points in this is if you look at unlisted and listed property, listed property has fallen significantly more, 30 to 35% in some cases, than unlisted, which is down like 8 to 10%. So this can be the same fund, right? Yeah. Um, except you can have the shares trading on the ASX as an A-REIT. That's because the market is making an assessment of the value of those assets. Whereas the independent valuers who go along every year yeah. or the valuers who go along every six months they will then adjust at the end of June 30th what was the valuation of this property on XYZ Street. And the thing about that is like 101 Collins Street, how do you devalue that by 20% when there's no turnover? All the tenants are staying there. They're not building another 101 Collins. Yeah. So it isn't as simple as interest rates increasing and the cap rate changing. There should be some impact from that. And looking at, uh, for example, I think some of the groups, the cap rate moved by 0.6%, so from like 4 to 4.6%. Whereas the bond yields moved from 0.5 to 4%, so 3.5%. Mm-hmm. There's no rule that says the valuation has to adjust by the same amount as interest rates. There's other things like rent increases, improvements. But broadly, I think there's a heap of discounts and a heap of value there. I don't know whether this is the nadir or not, but it's definitely- What a word. Yeah, definitely much better. I definitely feel more comfortable allocating into listed at the moment. Because you're buying assets because at a discount. Fallen. Everything's trading at a discount to NTA. So the question is whether that NTA is accurate and how much further that NTA net tangible asset value will fall. And you get that in the ASX update. Yeah. So Mary, Mary, quite contrary. You might be uh, contrarian with this one. You may be onto something. So, you know, when we, when we look at uh, long-term investments, sometimes the best opportunity to buy and oftentimes is when most people are worried. It's probably a wary of with the VAP, which is pretty popular. And I think Goodman Group's like 20% of that. Yeah. But Goodman hasn't fallen. Pretty much everything else has fallen. Yeah. So if you're buying VAP as you're exposed to A-REITs, you're going to get a lot of Goodman, not necessarily the deep value that you're looking for. Yeah, good point. That's the VAP ETF, the Vanguard Property Securities ETF. In short, what VAP does is it just goes and buys all the REITs. 
That's basically all it does. So uh, you've got to be aware of that. Next question comes from eight balls and ten baggers. <laughs> question. <laughs> you want me to ask? Yeah, go for it. Question for Owen. Oh, this is a perfect one for you. Where do you start with trying to find businesses for your satellite portfolio? I want to find them early enough to make 10 baggers, hence the name. I'm in the health industry and I feel like to find companies in the sector is pretty much all I know and it keeps me up to date with what's happening. I've looked at health sector holdings in the VAS, VSO, so Vanguard, and IXJ, which is iShares Healthcare ETF, Global Healthcare, but not sure if there are other ways to identify individual companies to then do additional research on. Yeah, yeah. So, there's plenty of ways here. I've got a bit of notes about this. this. Thanks for keeping up with the regular episodes. It's a highlight of my week and one of my main sources of education. See, notice how he or she said, thanks for keeping up with um, the regular episodes. Yeah. It's really, that's good. Every Saturday morning, 7 a.m. does take commitment. It does, yeah. Um, credit to you. Credit to you. You did one when you were on holiday not too long ago. Um, so, one of the things that a lot of individual investors struggle with is they don't have like a philosophy and I know that sounds so wishy-washy, but like, what are you looking for? Like, why do you invest in the companies you invest in? Some people buy cheap stocks, some people buy REITs, which we just heard. Some people buy growth stocks, some people try and predict themes, some people try and trade stocks, which I don't. So the reason that picking, like just writing down what you do and don't look for in companies and why you invest the way you do is important because then it informs everything that comes next, which includes your process. Your investment process is basically how you do your philosophy. So if your philosophy is like, um, I like to buy the strongest companies and hold them for as long as possible. Well, then you're not going to create an investment process that focuses on things that are really short term. Like I'll buy a stock that's got a low price earnings ratio or a high dividend yield or something like this. Like in this case, the philosophy might be I'm trying to buy tomorrow's um, healthcare companies today. So, what are you going to look for? Well, you're going to look for conferences, industry publications. You're going to look for fund managers that specialize in uh, health technology companies globally, and you're going to follow them and read what they say, their quarterly reports. You're going to read a fund manager from the United States that specializes in this and comes out with a quarterly report and says, we think genomics is the future. We believe that the best way to play this is X, Y, and Z. You realize Australia is probably like 10 years behind that, maybe even more. And then you go, okay, what are the best expressions of that in Australia? For me personally, I'm looking for uh, founder and family run companies, wide moats and pricing power. So it just means businesses that are defensive, but can also charge more. And I'm looking for growth industries. So you can, ha- this is a, an interesting thing when it comes to stocks is you can have a defensive business that is also growth. Yeah. Um, so, you can have a strong defensive business and will keep growing um, for many years to come. So, when I do a filter, which is the first process of this, I look for in small caps, I look for fund managers who I respect and then follow what they say and put their companies on my shortlist. Because I think if they've got a team of five or 10 people uh, and they're really talented too, why would I like try and reinvent the wheel. I'll just take the five or 10 companies that they're telling me about, put them on my watch list and do my own work. You don't uh, inherit someone else's conviction. You have to build that yourself through research. But some of the funds that I follow in Australia, DMX Capital, Lakehouse, UBS Microcap Fund, Norse Capital from Curtis, Intelligent Investor, which is um, a fund and a newsletter. So I follow these. Um, but there are plenty of others like Forage is probably not so much the type of philosophy that I follow, but I follow those types of guys. I know if Anyone that's interesting, uh, whether they're researchers or fundies, um, I don't ever look at like broker reports ever. 
And another thing that's worth mentioning is if you try and use what we call screening technology, where you um, you try and use like Ticker Terminal or Yahoo Finance or something like this, where you can say, I'm looking for companies on the ASX that are in healthcare that do this and do that. Um, it won't work for small caps because the, the financial data just simply isn't good enough. Another thing to keep in mind, this person said that they look for health technology companies. That might be in your circle of competence, but the way that the industry categorizes what is a health company and what's a technology company and what's a industrial company is just so weird. You end up with some companies that are totally health companies but have a different label and, and they're technology, so you don't ever get them in a health fund. So you want to make sure that you've broadened your scope enough to the other sectors around it. Um, so I put all those companies on my watch list. From my watch list, I then create a qualitative um, like checklist. So I have a checklist, which is based, like it might have an, it might be quantitative in the fact that it's in a spreadsheet and it has like, is the company cash flow positive? Does the company um, have a founder CEO? But these are qualitative metrics. Like you have to go and research and read about them and listen to calls and analyst calls and read annual reports. But the difference between the way I score companies and the way other people do it with their checklist is I score based on positive and negative. So I do positive and negative scoring, meaning that it can add to a company's score or it can detract. The average time it takes me to get through my checklist is about four hours. Yeah. Um, and that's just the checklist. I want to be very clear about that. I've been doing it for years. Um, it would normally take me weeks, months, maybe even one or two years now to get comfortable with companies. Yeah. Um, and that's the honest truth. Like I have a pretty good understanding of most companies on the ASX now having done it for 10 years. Uh, it would be a long time before I get comfortable with stocks. And that's the reason I just honestly I'm the wrong person to ask this question. <laughs> I just honestly don't have the time to commit to doing that sort of research. And if you can't do that, I don't think you should be playing in the sector. So I think what you're doing, what the way you're, you're approaching is is key. Yeah, you can you can subscribe to research. That's cool too. Um, like some people subscribe to the Motley Fool Intelligent Investor. And I think that's kind of cool too if you have it as a very small allocation, but you've got to still yeah. read the reports. Yeah. You still got to write down. I just got a note in here. I write everything down. Even if I don't invest in something, I write it down. And I put all of my information in Notion, which is like if Google's, um, if like Microsoft Word had a baby with Excel and had a baby with some other thing, that's what it would come out uh, is Notion. Yeah. Um, and so I put all that in there. Um, and I would just, I would write down everything because writing crystallizes. I think John Addis, the founder of Intelligent Investor, I spoke to him the other day and he said something to the effect of, he quoted someone, so Joan Pigeon or Joan, I can't remember the name, uh, but he basically, he says, I write to understand what I think. Yeah. Uh, something like that. And that's so true. But um, that's how I do it. I wouldn't constrain myself to the healthcare sector, even though that's what you're looking for. I'd go adjacent industries as well, just so you don't limit the basket. Because frankly, there aren't that many good technology companies and health technology companies in Australia. Um, you will have to look abroad, but definitely small cap is where you'll find them. They're more fragile businesses. Janet Yellen from the block says, that's a play on a few things there. How do... An investment fund made of bonds work. I mean, the bonds held by the fund have a market value, which will be changing as interest rates change. However, when a bond reaches its full duration, its value returns back to the original start point. So the investor gets their full capital back. Plus bonds have interest paid to investors. How do these three variables reflect the value of an investor's position in the fund? 
I struggle to understand this. And he said, note, I'm dying to get my hands on your course, but I've decided to put the capital towards repaying my mortgage. Maybe in 20 years time, once the mortgage is paid, I can subscribe to the course. Why don't you just send me a message and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, send me a message on Twitter, Janet. Yelling. That is a real name, yelling. Don't yell. And um, I'll sort you out. Drew, did you want me to answer this or do you want to answer? I'm happy to have a crack. Go for it. I think it's important to know that bonds, bond funds and bond ETFs, ETFs are, are no different to a, a stock market or a share ETF. Yeah. Yes. I mean, bonds are traded daily like everything else. Yes, there's no ASX where you can see the, the live price, but they are valued and there is an idea of value. Some of them are traded over the counter, but you can still find out what someone's willing to pay. So, the value does literally just reflect the value of all those underlying bonds on any given day. And yes, they do move to par or they do get repaid at par, but what always happens, and you've seen it with hybrids, is they actually slowly trade towards that par value mm. uh, at the as that maturity date comes up. So, if you think most of these ETFs, best way would be to go through an iShares uh, like the IAF, um, what do you call it, the profile. Uh, but essentially, you have 500 or 600 different bonds, all at different values of a different uh, discounts Maturities. to par value. And, and they're maturing over time and your interest rate is changing over time. So, the key things on a, on that, I was just pulling it out before, is you, you've got a trailing yield, which is what the income that's been paid over the last 12 months. But you've also got uh, a weighted average coupon which is like 2.65 at the moment, which mm. is the interest rate that's being paid on the bonds that you're buying if you're buying that ETF at the moment. And then you've got a weighted average yield to maturity, which is probably what we're referring to here. Mm. So if all those bonds went to maturity, the yield wouldn't be the 1.34 or the from last year. It'd actually be 4.4% yep. based on all the new bonds they're buying and when those Plus mature and the capital. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Um, there's a few other figures that get a bit googly with... Um, bond funds but Drew's thing here I think the bit maybe Janet where you're confused is that as a bond gets closer to its maturity date it gets less risky yeah um, because you have like less time like you know that you don't have to have your capital if you have the bond holder exposed for much longer now if you invest in like sub like I guess sub investment grade bonds like below investment grade bonds. So these are like the really, uh, like the corporate bonds, the ones that come with high uh, credit ratings or low credit ratings. Um, those have higher default rates. Yeah. But they're typically, not always, but they can be refinanced or they're typically not owned in a great, I guess, value by some of these funds that we're talking about. If you're just talking about typical government bonds, um, you typically have no problem with those. But just remember, as it gets closer to the maturity, um, they are lo lower risk just because they're not as exposed to things like interest rate changes and that type of thing. And there's hundreds of bonds typically inside these funds, not a couple. And that's really important to understand too. And so a final example of this is like if you have a 10-year bond, a bond that gives you your money back in 10 years, you're obviously taking more risk because there's more risk that the person that has the money or the company that has the money will default or the government. Um, but if you have one year, it's less risky. And AAA rated bonds very rarely default, um, especially over one year. So that would be my answer there. Um, okay. So we've got a question here from Chuck underscore Norris underscore 10Xs underscore the market underscore every day. Um, this is more of like a- I didn't see this one. This is more of like a philosophical one. Um, I'll give this one to you, Drew, because it is uh, one of your mates. 
Hyphen Legends. Thank you for bringing that in. One of my mates. If there was a revolution next year and Andrew was installed from RBA governor to the to a benevolent dictator and you, his financial advisor, what changes would you both make to the financial and superannuation industry oh, to benefit God. Australia? As this is not a personal question, go as specific as you like. Well, if I was a benevolent dictator, no, you're the benevolent dictator. How many people do I want to piss off? I'd say, okay, I'll, no, I'll, how about this? I'll give you what I think, as your advisor, I'll tell you what I think you should do, uh, Dr. Andrew Derrimuth. Esquire, I think you should have a different organization that sits like the RBA, but also has some control over tax rules. So you can make better decisions between- uh, Throw out the tax act. Government, yes. Rebuild the tax yeah. act. Government policy and what the RBA is trying to do. Yeah. Because you got government trying to stimulate and you've got RBA trying to slow the economy down. Exactly. It doesn't make any sense. So if we can- can you please put one of those in? We can put that in. Which you probably Throw know the tax act. Yeah, yeah, that is so complicated. You need like a committee that talks to both. Yeah. Well, you got this, or just pull the RBA into the government and let them run it together because it's not really independent. Well, maybe Donald Trump. <laughs> um, so- well, it's not really independent. If well, you have to not- buy the last remaining bonds that are issued by the government, well, yeah, the government's it's not like spending you're going to let here. the government default. Yeah. Um, uh, Big changes. Frank credits would stay. <laughs> Just no, trying we- to get the audience. <laughs> <laughs> one for the people. <laughs> Money for everyone. I mean, one thing Hyperinflation think, Zimbabwe. Here like, we go. <laughs> big one. Yeah, go the future fund opens to managing superannuation money and the default system. This is why I didn't want to answer this question. So, the size of some of the- Like Aussie super host plus. Not I'll name them. The size kind of worries me. And the size and control of Future Fund or of the others of the others, particularly the when you're in listed assets. Too. Yeah, that's a if you if you nationalise. Isn't it, that old mate that just lives up works up the corner here? They, sure. they manage it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I saw him walking the other day. But the default system doesn't necessarily. I know, I know we've talked about a lot that it doesn't necessarily suit retirees either. So how do you make these? How do you make a more appropriate solution for retirees? And that's what we work on all the time. And that's why we we we're growing is because we have we think about retirement. and That's it. Whereas yeah. a lot of it is based on this idea that you just keep putting money in and it grows and it grows and it grows over time. You get benefits from compounding. But what happens when you stop? Yeah. So, it'd be better solutions around that. Uh, so, would you have that also act as kind of like a sovereign wealth fund kind of thing, like more like the Norwegian one where it's a bit more proactive around things like infrastructure and that sort of stuff? And I it's feel funded? like default feels a bit outdated. I mean, I- <laughs> What do you mean by default? Like the fact that you can still turn up to a job and you, you know, you're in the biggest fund or the second biggest, or you're in certain sectors. And I mean, maybe it's just because people are disengaged, but it seems to like this automatic flow of mil- billions and billions of dollars that then has to be invested. Whether that's the best way to be to be doing it, uh, but <laughs> wait, what? Wait, so you're saying that in this so you think the, universe, the, the most you major have- super funds have an issue because they have so much money coming in. If you're already at two hundred billion and you're getting Five six billion a month—that's buying you know, cube, like cube holdings every month in contributions. So how do you actually invest in that environment when you have so much more money that you have to deploy? That's Apple, <laughs> Tesla, Nvidia. Yeah, more asset. It just becomes Melbourne yeah, Airport. That 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 concerns me a little bit, but I think yep. you're going to be a bit of trouble after this. Episode. No, that's fair. Would you take my idea on board? Yes. 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 Yeah. 
So you would, because I think, I, you know what I'm preaching from? I'm preaching from the MMT book here because it's a bit more draconian. Yeah. Like you would have, there would be an authority that controls things because people think the RBA controls everything. It only controls one side of it. Yeah. And people think the government controls everything. It controls, well, probably more exactly. of it. But they, don't, they don't really work together. No. Uh, and the, the RBA governors on a seven-year term, politicians are on, at best, three and a half. Yeah. And that that is the annoying thing, right? Yeah. Is because you they're not thinking long term. They don't have the protection. They want to think long term, but they don't have the yeah. protection because some bloody lobby group yep. that sits over on the hill will come and get them voted out or there'll be some conspiracy brought up. Like Franken credits. Like yep. Franken credits. What a conspiracy that was. <laughs> long live <laughs> the Franken credit. <laughs> don't get me in any more trouble. <laughs> Good question from Chuck Norris, 10X is the market every day. I bet you do. Clueless underscore and underscore not underscore blonde says hi guys thank you for providing excellent info every week to newbies like me just starting my investment journey and feeling a bit lost so trying to educate myself by listening to a number of reputable investment podcasts including yours reputable i I want to stop listening to this one um i have a question about the portfolio structure you keep mentioning the core and satellite parts of a portfolio however other podcasts mention that you should invest in 25 of your top stock ideas and not look at anything else. So what is the idea of having a core and non-core split in a portfolio if my 20 high conviction ideas will give me the diversification I need if they're in different sectors? Please set me straight. Different. Oh, maybe don't say that quote, but uh, I think there's Did no you, s- you different strokes for different folks. Is that Different the- strokes for different folks. Horses for courses. Horses. I think there's, there's no single approach that works for everyone it's what's what works for you and the way you invest if you uh, if you listen to a stock podcast they're going to say that yeah if you listen to a financial advisor and someone that tries to educate people yeah. you're going to get a different answer exactly and we're i mean we're inherently conservative in what we do uh, and a big part like if you want to go specifics on this core non-core split a massive part of that is one how much volatility do you want to accept because you're going to if you're doing 20 25 stocks you're going to have a lot of volatility and two what cost do you want to pay so core is very much about being lower cost and mm. tracking the index and your non-core is more active management, whether that's in stock picking or elsewhere. So volatility and fees are incredibly important in that core non-core discussion. Um, we'd usually start at a base of something like 60% core, 40% non-core, depending on whether it's Aussie domestic, uh, Aussie global or uh, fixed income. Um, but I think it's very much the most important thing is to understand what, what, uh, what your objective is, what's driving your decision and then whether that which approach suits you the best and what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. I'd say like a lot should be majority. If you're not saying for this person, but just if you are a new investor out there, um, majority of it should be in your core. Just get comfortable with that for the first one to two years. If you want to scratch that each ASAP, build that core portfolio, get set in, and then have a separate portfolio, like a brokerage account or something where you can have your satellite. Try not to mix that as much because um, you'll get confused. The old rule of thumb before ETFs were so easy to buy and managed funds were easy to buy. They're still kind of hard to buy. But um, was that you had to get to 30 stocks because you were diversified. The old rule was that 30 stocks, like 30 individual securities eliminated most of the diversification or benefit. If you think about it, like you got rid of most of that risk. So you were diversified, quote unquote. Uh, but what we've since found is that actually there's been most uh, there's been better studies that show if you know what you're doing as an individual investor, you actually don't need 30 stocks. Somewhere between 10 and 15 eliminates the majority of diversifiable risk. 
So that might sound crazy is if you only have a certain number of stocks. That might sound crazy, but hear me out. Um, what you're looking for are individual investments that are non-correlated. Yeah. So that's why in a in a core portfolio you might have, you know, between say, depending on your core portfolio, maybe between between five and fifteen individual funds or ETFs, because they're not all going to move in the same direction. But if you buy all the same thing, they're going to all go in the same way, and you're not diversified. Exactly. But one of the things that happens actually, Drew, um, from these studies is that if you do a concentrated portfolio, there's a very high risk, there's a different type of risk that you don't get winners. So if you do like a 20 stock portfolio on the ASX and there's 2,000 of them, there's a chance that you might miss out on the other the ones that 1,950 yep. that actually have some really good businesses in there. Yep. And so that's a different risk. It's not diversifi diversifiable risk. It's a more of a market risk. Yeah. Um, so, in summary, just to not bore everyone to death with this, um, some people would say this. I would say 20 to 25 stocks in the satellite's fine. If that's your play portfolio, yeah. that's fine. Well, we have a 20 stock portfolio within our core well, for some clients. And that, that's fine too, yeah. because you're using the stocks as a way to build a core, yeah. not necessarily in a satellite like this. And I just think a lot of people have this arbitrary number in their head. I just think with individual stocks, if you're an individual investor, it requires more time to monitor it. So I tend to have fewer ideas unless it is just purely like play money in the satellite. Um, my belief is that most investors should just have a core portfolio and most investors don't need to buy individual stocks. But if you are interested, you should. Yeah. Okay. So we've got, uh, we got a couple more. I might just uh, go straight to the next one. Does that make sense? I can read this one. Go for it. Buffy the Market Slayer. It's a oh. good throwback. Oh, gosh. A new investor trying to work out how companies are valued, but is confused by the fact that there is a huge discrepancy in a company's valuation by major investment, maybe investment brokers as well. How is it possible that one analyst will value a company at a certain amount per share in a strong buy recommendation while another values it at 25% less with a strong sell? And are we not talking about, and we're not talking about a pre-profit company, but some leading tech companies, WiseTech, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, if the experts can't agree, what chance do beginners like me to have have to get it right? Confused and disheartened. Okay. Yeah. So I looked into this through WiseTech. Um, I'll give you the reason: is that when we buy a stock or anything, an ETF, a property, we a don't couch. A couch. Maybe not so much a couch. Well, maybe a couch if you think it's going to be worth more in the future. <laughs> Basically, what we're doing we're doing is we're make we're buying the future. A lot of people like look at stock charts and they show you the past. Yeah. But what we're buying, we're trying to buy the future. And um, in the short term, that can be very, a lot of studies will show that in the first one, two, three, four, five years, a stock's return is mostly driven by sentiment, interest rates, to Drew's point, uh, these types of things. Over time, after a while, it's actually driven by the fundamentals. So the further you look out into the future, the more important it is for profits or earnings to go up, for sales to go up, et cetera. But I go, I'll give you an example. According to some data that I've got here in front of me from um, the ticket terminal, which is something you can pay to subscribe to, it's just like a database. Um, ma management of WiseTech, Drew, I'll give you, I'm going to put you on the scene. The management of WiseTech, according to this, have a forecast revenue guidance for the coming year that we're in, $780 million as the top line of that guidance. And the bottom line is 755. So they're saying between 755 and 780. Yeah. What do you think the consensus of analysts is? 780, 780. 
The consensus of analysts is 809 million. Yeah. So it's above even the highest target. Yeah. It could be because of currencies or whatever, because WiseTech operates in different currencies. But right there, you can see that analysts expect more than what the company said they're expecting. Yeah. Um, and in the year ahead after that, they're saying 1.07 billion of revenue. So a massive jump again. And if you drill down into this, you would find that some of those analysts that this has surveyed would be so optimistic about the future and some of them would be pessimistic. Some of them might even have vested interests. And so at the end of the day, what it is is an opinion about the future. And the only one that's really correct is the person who has the most correct opinion that like plays out. And you don't know for many years typically. Exactly. Um, so in the short term, it's very... Some analysts will say it's overvalued because of they've done 10 minutes of work and they don't really understand it, but the price earnings ratio looks high. Others will say, no, I think it's a long-term buy. So many- and There's so many factors and it's all about growth yeah. and uh, different estimates of growth. Some might think the sector is not going to grow as much as it is or the company is going to win more market share within the sector. All these little assumptions change what the revenue outcome might be. Yeah. Uh, and then the other one is multiples. So different analysts will have a different multiple they'll apply to that business, yeah. which will be based on their view of the sector or the economy. So if they've got a different, an eight times versus seven times, it's like a 16% difference. I would guess, hopefully that's right. <laughs> uh, in their valuation, potentially. Yeah, that is. Um, the, it's, it's, it's just all about what you think is holding in the future. And our philosophy is shaped by our experiences and our education when it comes to this type of stuff. And you might have one analyst that loves pizza and one analyst that doesn't. So they're naturally going to be biased towards pizza companies like Domino's. Yeah. And they, they like Domino's. And they don't know certain types of retail companies, not others. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And some of them won't have a choice. They'll still have to research the pizza company, even though they have no idea about pizza. Yeah. And so they can come out with anything. And it's just, just one thing to be really wary of is when you get broker reports or analyst reports, you can still download them like as PDFs. Go to the back of the report. And it will have the conflicts of interest, particularly for small cap companies, the conflicts of interest statement. Um, and that will be, they have to put that in there. And just remember, I don't read broker reports. I don't read those types of things. But if I did, um, I'd be very wary. Okay, we've probably got time for one more question, Drew. Which one do you want to go with? I thought Worried Wonder Woman, maybe. Oh, a repeat offender. Is it a repeat offender? Yes, Worried Wonder Woman won oh. the award last week. Oh, that's good. Okay. Would that be unfair? I can. Oh, I can ask. Okay, you go. Dear Dynamic Duo, Triple D, <laughs> three-part question. Okay. If the US goes into, re into recession, and please keep your answer till the end. Oh, you don't want me to just shout it out? <laughs> you can try. Okay. If the US goes into recession, how will that affect the NASDAQ 100 ETF, NDQ, and, and fuel ETF? Fuel? Fuel, fuel, no idea. <laughs> how will this affect the Australian share market, number two? And <laughs> number three, are you a believer of taking some profit off the top while the going is good? Short answers. <laughs> Short answer. Uh, if the US goes into recession, how will that flick the NASDAQ ETF? Well, it's probably- Is it not sure? Is that your answer? No, not sure is probably my answer overall. Like, I don't know what's going to happen in the short term, but we can see that the US stock market's up and they're probably going to go into a recession. And they're predicting a recession already. So I'd say it could actually help if rates fall like they would in a recession. That usually benefits technology companies. Yeah. Uh, it just depends what kind of recession it is. If it's business driven and they stop investing in tech, well, then you might have- an issue on, on NASDAQ. But we've seen, you know, the NASDAQ's dominated by Apple and NVIDIA. Yeah. Those companies Tesla. don't seem to, it doesn't matter what the environment yeah. is, so. 
Yeah, yeah. So it's there's too many variables to predict yeah. with certainty. So I'd rather be uh, generally correct than specifically wrong. My general answer is I don't know, but I would say that in the medium term, it wouldn't be good. Yeah. But typically, these companies are really resilient in NASDAQ 100. So I wouldn't worry too much about it. Yeah, no. Number two was how will this affect the Australian share market? The US recession, probably not that much. There would be some companies in Australia that operate in the US and so on and so forth. But I can't imagine it would impact us too much other than if the businesses had operations in the United States. Oh, I answered this the wrong way. I said if it was Australia went into recession. Oh, if Australia went into recession, how would that affect the Australian market? I said it'd be pretty bad. I think it'd be pretty it'd be, bad. It'd be, it'd be residential very, property driven. We're very cyclical in Australia. We've exactly. got a lot of property. We've got a lot of resources. Not as much. And that's cyclical in a different way. I'm uh, not we're sure very that's bank, We're very bank heavy. Yeah, that is definitely not priced in. No. If, if Australia had a bad recession, our share market would struggle. Maybe not so much companies like WiseTech over here that we just mentioned, which is a technology company that operates around the world. But definitely a lot of the domestic focused companies would be hurt private or public. Number three, are you a believer of taking profit off the table while the going is good? Not really, just rebalancing. Yeah, that's, I think one of the golden rules is the importance oh, of rebalancing yeah, you've got that right there. and the value of rebalancing, a key part of what we do and why we do quarterly reviews for every one of our clients. Yep. The value, if you want to buy low and sell high, rebalancing is the, the automatic way to do it. Rebalancing uh, is shown to add the most value when the market is most uncertain. So when it's low or high. And I think Worried Wonder Woman has helped me with my dad joke this week too there is a dad joke but before we do that uh, i believe dr andrew derrimuth does have to pick a question a uh, name yes. to award the value investor program available on rask education takes you through everything no. about how to value a stock or a business but there was one questioner who we didn't get to which i thought was a really good name poor derrimuth's almanac the wit and wisdom of andrew derrimuth esquire yeah maybe we can save that but we'll that, was, that, next that, was, week. that was a good one Chuck Norris's 10x is the market every day. I think Janet Yellen from the block. I just got that J-Lo vibe. Yeah, did you? Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Oh, I did. She just wanted to be the one to go the course too. Yeah. Uh, but I just like the J-Lo vibe on that one. Yeah, so. yeah, like it. Yeah, Janet Yellen from the block. <laughs> um, so if you wrote in Janet Yellen from the block, um, you can, you know, now you've got to pay down your mortgage or whatever you've got to do, but you can send us a message, uh, get in contact. We'll give you a pass to the Value Investor Program. Uh, and now- as we go off into the distance, maybe we should have some applause, early applause potentially for Dr. Andrew Derriman's uh, <laughs> forecast. For those of you that are catching up That's on the Australian heavy. Investors Podcast, he did predict late last year, Drew's <laughs> alter ego, that rates would fall. Subsequently, rates went up three times. But <laughs> three maybe, <laughs> maybe they fall before the end of the year. It's Who five knows? months. We've got a long time. Who knows? Okay. Uh I'm going to steal Worried Wonder Woman's dad joke. Worried Wonder Woman's joke. Take us off into the distance. What did the cannibal get when he was late to dinner? Tell me. The cold shoulder. (laughs) And we were wondering where your joke would come from for this week. And here it is from the wonderful hands of Worried Wonder Woman. If you want to get in contact with Drew Meredith and the team at Waddle Partners Financial Planning, uh, there's a link in your show notes that says financial planning. You can also keep up to date with Drew's articles, my articles, and everything that we write write during the week. There right during the week maybe there we go uh you'll find links in the show notes to our author bios uh where you can find out what we're thinking about during the week our articles and have a read um of what we're up to uh you can also find out more about both of us on uh on the rask websites at the waddle partners website it's all available in the show notes drew as always thanks for joining me good to see you
For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.